you have a Bible this morning and you'll read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Genesis chapter 18. Book of Genesis chapter 18. We're going to begin our reading in verse 17 and read down to verse 33 at the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, saying that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him. He will command his children and his household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is to come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there will be fifty righteous. Excuse me. Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous and the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city. Then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure that there shall lack five of the fifty righteous, without destroy all the city for lack of five. And he said, (coughs) If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Well, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there be thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. He said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. He said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And that will conclude our reading this morning. The title of our message this morning is, Those for whom we intercede. Those for whom we intercede. Before we look at this scripture today and maybe see what Abraham does here and how God responds, um, I want to encourage you um, of all the spiritual disciplines that we're commanded to observe, um, 
I believe prayer is the most important one. Why is busyness a sin? Not only because of the things you may be doing, but also the things that you, out of necessity through busyness, can't do. And it seems as though in our day, and perhaps this has always been the case, um, prayer seems to be greatly neglected. Perhaps because there are so many things to busy our minds with. Um, I heard it said one time that there is so much content uploaded to YouTube that in one second, there's enough content to take the entirety of your life. You just watched whatever was uploaded in that second, or maybe it was a minute. Um, That's a lot. And yet, if we don't pray, and I want to be clear here, I'm not talking about a one-way conversation wish list. I'm not talking about some mystic exercise. Not a feel-good effort. Feel really down in the dumps, and if I pray more, I'm going to feel better. Um, I'm talking about what biblical prayer is communing with God. Where two people are present. Think about that. When you pray, two people are present. And one of them is God himself. And that discipline is vital to any spiritual life. If you don't pray, you don't have spiritual life. I'm not talking about salvation. I mean, life through the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. Prayer is essential to that. And apart from it, we may upkeep all the spiritual disciplines and they may effectively cleanse our consciences, but they never replace personal, intimate communication and communion with God. And there seems, in my experience, to be an aura around people who do at times. People are different who commune with God. Because like Jacob, God leaves them forever changed. And like him, they walk different. They talk different. Their thoughts are different. Because God is not a mortal man. So if I come in contact with somebody, and this is very common with young people, they come in contact with somebody that they admire and respect. And they listen to their words, and they emulate their words and their actions. And and perhaps that's a good thing, perhaps it's not. Regardless, when you commune with God, truly commune with God, It's not that we just emulate Him. It's that He transforms us 
into his likeness. So you're not mimicking, and I'm not mimicking for the sake of copying somebody we admire. But there is a change that takes place in us. And suddenly those attitudes, which are so deeply rooted in us, those thought processes, those habits, God, through communion with Him, often effortlessly uproots them. Did you hear what I said? Like you might struggle and strive over and over and over to read your Bible, to not think hateful thoughts towards people, to not whatever the struggle, the sin that easily besets you. And you, you try and you repent over and over and over. But listen, one hour communing with God and experiencing the transformational effects that God's Holy Spirit can have upon your being can make those struggles with which you have wrestled for a great part of your life be effortlessly overturned and remedied. Why? Because there's something about being in the presence of God that is altogether different than we can possibly comprehend being in the presence of anyone else. And Abraham exhibits here a part of that change inwardly. And it's evidenced by whom he is interceding for. I mean, this is just, this is overwhelming to see what Abraham is doing here. Thousands of years later, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities, have become a universal example, proverb for us, of sinfulness. And even pundits, a number of years ago, even a appellate court judge wrote a book, and it was the concept of Sodom was included in the book title. Like that's how much that even in colloquial terms, Sodom is this picture of sinfulness. And yet Abraham is moved because God speaks to Abraham. Now notice here at the very beginning, God asks this rhetorical question, shall I tell Abraham of what my plans are to do? And he determines to do that. He determines to reveal. Now notice that, first of all, God reveals something to a man that a man could not have otherwise known. That's prayer. That's an aspect of prayer. And I'm not talking about when God reveals something to you because you really, really want something and then selfishly we can convince ourselves in our own minds, well, God's going to give me this answer because I really want it. The Bible assures us that that's selfish praying. That's asking amiss, as the book of James teaches us, that we might consume things on our own desires and wants. But God speaks to Abraham and he reveals his intention to destroy this city. 
But if you remember, just a few chapters earlier, we learned that Abraham had somebody he really cared about in that city. And his name was Lot. And it was his nephew. And do you remember why Abraham and Lot parted ways? An argument. A disagreement. And so if we were to go back to chapter 13, we would see that this disagreement finally reached a fever pitch. And Abraham and Lot evidently go up to this mountain or go up to this elevated place. And Abraham defers to Lot and he says, you choose. You go one way and I'll go the opposite. One way known to be a desert-like terrain, not habitable or not uh, uh, as profitable for a man wealthy in livestock. And the other one, a well-watered plains of Sodom. With the sins of Sodom known. And I want to point something out about that text. I want to read one verse in chapter 13. It says this. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. So I want to point this out about What Abraham is doing here, Abraham begins, as you know, to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah and for Lot and his family. And notice that part of Abraham's intercession did not involve the acknowledgement of the disagreement between him and Lot. Nor did he bring up the fact that Lot chose of his own accord to go the wrong direction. Now, if you're like me, and you oftentimes see people who deliberately choose to sin and ignore God, and as a result, they end up reaping what they sow. If they sow in sin, they're going to reap consequence. And it's very easy from our fleshly position to look at those people and get this Sad and sinful delight that they're experiencing the consequence of their actions. And so we say, you know what? Look at them. They're getting what they deserve. But notice altogether that Abraham and the attitude of Abraham has been so transformed by his interaction and communion with God that he does not come to God and begin to bring out all of Lot's faults to talk about how he deserved it, to talk about how he chose that and that it's his, uh, that, that he's reaping what he sowed rather than looking at Lot and saying, you know what? I'm going to remove my hands from him. Good luck. He made a wrong choice. He offended me. He made the wrong decision. Abraham steps in and he begins to intercede on Lot and Sodom's behalf. He loved Lot. When a person walks with God, the preeminent virtue which is noticeable in them is the preeminent virtue that is noticeable in Christ. And that is love. Or in other words, I'll put it this way. When you spend time with God, you love people more. The book of Matthew chapter 5 teaches us 
Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches this mind-blowing concept, really. If you really take it for what it says, and so much of what Jesus says is so opposite of what our nature teaches us, and so opposite of what, it's so radical. And one of those things is, you heard that it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. I mean, that's a, just a, a, an unbelievable truth. It's commonplace in Christian jargon, but it's not commonplace in our natural man. We repel at the idea at loving people. I'm not saying going through the motions. I'm not saying doing nice things. I mean down deep in your heart, actually having a love for someone who is your enemy and actively works against you. And Jesus instructs us that we ought to love them, that we ought to pray for those who despitefully use us. And so here's often where the mistake is made. We read that as a command. And we think, okay, I'm going to go do that in my mind. I'm going to go through those actions. But listen, that type of deep love is not something you and I can conjure up on our own. God must impute a love for people like that in us. It has to be manifested through the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we can love people that desperately and that much that we would call out and and do things that people are knowingly making a decision like Lot did, and yet we love them anyway. You see, the point I'm trying to make this morning is when we pray, we must intercede for people who don't deserve it. We find another example of this. We find examples all through the scriptures of this. One that came to mind this week was a a woman in the Bible, Abigail. And she had a husband. What was his name? Nabal, I think it was. Which means fool. And David wanted to come. And David had been kind to many of Nabal's servants. And he wants to come and, and use some of Nabal's things. And he won't allow him to. And he's very evil. He he acts very angry at David. And David comes and he's ready to pounce upon him. He brings 400 men and he's ready to slaughter the house. And he's ready to respond in anger. And he even admits later that would have been sinful for him to do that. And Abigail hears about what Nabal, her husband, had said. And she tells two servants, go ahead and take a whole bunch of stuff and see if you can appease David. And she runs out. And she throws herself and she says this. Listen to what she says. Do not accredit my foolish husband's decisions to himself. Place his sin upon me and allow me to pay the penalty for his sin. Now think about that. Nabal would have received, and even it says in the Bible that he was a wicked man. And so perhaps Abigail even would have been released from this miserable marriage to this foolish man that she was uh, married to. She could have gotten out of it. And you would have thought there might have been a celebration on her end to say, you know what? He's going to die. The king's going to come. Maybe I'll be free. 
but she loves. And her love takes her so far that she's willing to sacrifice herself for the welfare of someone else. So let's put it in our day and time in our prayer life. Whom do we intercede for? It's not a bad thing to intercede for those people that we love. I intercede for you and for your children, for my children and for myself and for other people frequently. Praying that God would intervene in your life and in my life and and these lost ones that need God, that he would intervene in some way in accordance with his will in an effective manner that he alone knows will work in our hearts and in our minds. And I think those things are all good. And yet, as the Bible says in, in, in Matthew 5, when Jesus was teaching, he says, you know what, that's a common thing to do, to love those who you, to be loved by those or to love those who love you. To act kindly to those who act kindly to you. But God calls us to something higher than that. And that is to love those who despitefully use us. And how do we do that if it is not by first being transformed by being in communion with God? Why? Because he reveals to us his love towards us. If you've ever been... We say this, it is a self-righteous attitude which prevents us from loving people who don't deserve it. Why? Well, because God loves you. And do you deserve it? Is there a greater, more profound display of somebody interceding than what the Bible teaches us Jesus does in the book of Luke? I believe it's chapter 23 in the book of Luke. Jesus is hanging upon a cross. He's dying. I want to turn there real quick and read it because it's so... So amazing. He's hanging here on a cross. He's being crucified between two thieves. And then Jesus prays this. Now I find it fascinating that Luke writes this down and then he writes the book of Acts and he records another prayer almost identical to this from somebody else. Jesus is hanging upon a cross between two thieves. He's been beaten. You know the story. It says this in verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. So Jesus is praying for these men who are the instruments of his torture and doing everything they can to maliciously, but then it's like Luke wants to tell you how profound this intercession is because the next few verses, all he records is how those people he's interceding for treats him. That's all it's about after this. Listen to it. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So he's, he's there naked. They take his clothes beneath the cross and they're saying, okay, let's cast lots. Let's roll the dice and see who gets to steal and take the things from this soon-to-be-dead man. Verse 35 And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. So you have some men making a sport over taking the things from him because he's about to die. You have another group of people who are deriding him and saying, well, if you're the Christ, come on down. You supposedly saved all these other people. Save yourself. 
And then there's another group of people, the soldiers, also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. And saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. There's another group of people mocking him. And then it says this, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. You notice how here, Jesus' intercession. Jesus is praying for all of these people because oftentimes sin can be bore from ignorance. You don't realize, you may know it's wrong and you may feel a conviction about the fact that it's wrong, but we have no idea the extent to which it is sinful and wrong and a sin against our fellow man and God. And so God knows as these people are crucifying their very Savior that they must trust in, God knows that their sin is born from ignorance and so he's interceding for them. And in a similar manner, I would suppose that Abraham is interceding for that city of Sodom and Gomorrah Because they're ignorant that God always will return or respond to sin with punishment and judgment. And they're ignorant of this. And listen, the people in this world, the the spiritual wickedness in high places that are doing things to make your life or doing things to harm our nation or churches or the freedoms that we might have or just trying to suppress the gospel. Most of them, many of them are people who are lying in ignorance, not knowing God. And so very often, what does the flesh do? Well, it builds cliques and teams. It gets into a division and we get our little tribe and all the way down through mankind, people have always divided into tribes and tried to make the enemy those people and have tried to despise those people and find a way that our tribe can conquer either by thought or deed or power that tribe. And Jesus teaches, no, 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 no. Don't divide yourself up in the little Republican party or the little Democratic party or the little, don't, Don't fall prey to looking at other people as the enemy that has to be conquered. What should we do for those leaders? Listen, when Paul writes about this and talking about praying for our, first of all, let prayer and supplication be made for our leaders. The man that he is telling them to pray for was infinitely worse than any of the presidents that we have ever had in our long history. And he's saying, pray for them intercede on their behalf. And so what ought you to do for our president and our last president and our next president, God willing, intercede for him. Pray for him that God would intervene in his or her heart. They don't deserve it. Look at all the things, the malicious things they're doing. Yeah, and many of them are doing it ignorant of God. And what they need is revelation of God. What they need to do is come to know the truth. Here, Jesus is demonstrating to us, no matter what people do, we ought to intercede in prayer. So what does that look like? And then I'm going to close this morning. What does it look like? Well, first of all, prayer has so many um, tones to it. So I hope your prayer, if it's a vibrant, full prayer life, you ought to, you probably... Should and I should spend a lot of time in praise and worship of the Lord in prayer. Like don't don't use God as 
a child who uses his grandparents, right? Will you buy me this toy? Will you take me to do these fun things? I'm in need. Will you help me? You know, prayer is time for us to come to God and just worship his greatness. In heaven, we're not going to be asking for things. We're going to be praising him, worshiping him for who he is, what he's done. Prayers of repentance. We're commanded to repent. We are also commanded to ask for the things that we desire and that we need. And we're commanded to intercede for people. I would... One person who takes prayer serious and seeks to commune with God through prayer is worth more than 10,000 saints who use it casually. What's the power? And it's not in the prayer. It's in the one that we speak to and commune with and have fellowship with. This morning, I want to exhort you today to something you already know and encourage. And that is, we need to intercede for those people who need intercession. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Charles Spurgeon. I read a sermon one time and it made an impression on me. And he said something to the nature of, and I'm not going to get this quote exact, but he said something to the nature of, everybody in your life ought to be blessed by you being in their life because they all fall under the shadows of your intercessory prayer. So your neighbor ought to be blessed to be your neighbor because there's at least one person in their life who brings before God them. Every coworker that you have, every person in this church ought to be a beneficiary of knowing you because you make a point to intercede for them in prayer. This morning, I'm grateful for the example that we have at Abraham, and I want to exhort you this morning that God would grace us that if we spend time with him with a heart and an attitude of love that we would intercede for those people who are in need of God's communion. That's our message this morning. I certainly didn't come out the way it came in. I pray God would use it to, to your good today.